Welcome to Easy Jazz Spotlight, brought to you by Easy Jazz FM Radio. In this episode, guest host John Armato talks with jazz band leader and singer Libby York from Chicago. A veteran of jazz standards, Libby talks to John about her new album, Dreamland. What inspires her? being a performer during the pandemic, her approach to jazz, and learning from the great jazz artist, Abby Lincoln. And now, here's John. Hi, I'm John Armato with another Easy Jazz Spotlight for Easy Jazz FM. And today I'm spending time with Libby York, who is a veteran of some of the country's most prestigious jazz clubs and a recording artist with five albums to her names, including her latest, Dreamland, which has consistently been hanging out in the top 10 on the Jazz Week charts, and which we'll talk about today. The New York Times calls Libby a jazz singer of cool composure and artful subtlety. And 10 years ago, Downbeat Magazine gave a four-star review to Libby's then-latest album, Sunday in New York, describing it as stylish and cosmopolitan with a broad streak of lush lush life urbanity. Elegant descriptions, to say the least. For my money, Libby is a storytelling vocalist, deeply connected to the lyrics and void of any distracting uh, stylistic embellishments. She shapes each line very gently, very respectfully, and very personally, uh, while always, always swinging and keeping things relaxed. Throughout a four-decade career, Libby has recorded and performed uh, around the country and around the world with jazz luminaries like John DiMartino, Warren Vachey, Russell Malone, the great Frank West, and many more. It's quite a resume for a singer who didn't start her career until she was 35, which I believe, given what an extraordinary singer she is, means she wasted the first 34 years. (laughs) I've had the privilege of knowing Libby for a few of those years. She's a delightful relative of one of my closest friends, and I've also been fortunate to work with her on the bandstand. I'm glad you'll get to know her today, too. So let's get started. Libby York, welcome. Thank you, John. Nice to see you. Yeah, it's good to be with you, Libby. It's always a pleasure when we get a chance to chat. Um, I I recall when when we worked together here in Sacramento a few years ago, I I think I enjoyed our conversations and and the stories you shared as much as I did the music. So it's it's always good to be with you. Um, I want to start with a piece of advice you once gave me. When I was working on my album, The Drummer Loves Ballads, a few years ago, you gave me a great piece of advice on what it means to record an album. And I have a tendency to sort of get in my head and get anxious. And you said, you know, remember, it's just a moment in time. It's not your whole career. So I'm curious what your new album, Dreamland, means to you when you think about it as a moment in time. Yeah, someone, in, I forget who told me that, but it helps take the pressure off when you're yeah. <laughs> like you're in the studio making your magnum opus or whatever, you know, this is a exactly. shot of your of that moment in time, you know. Um, yeah, this record was so, so special to make because uh, uh, Randy Napoleon and Rodney Whitaker uh we play are on the faculty at Michigan State. Rodney's head of the jazz department there, and uh, uh-huh. so we recorded up in Lansing, Michigan, and um, you know, just connected, just really connected. And for me, well, this was the first time, uh, the fifth time I've been in the studio producing my own project, 
I was just very aware of the fact that that the mic is like whispering into a listener's ear. You know, it's so intimate and it's so different from performing live. So I was kind of uh, very aware of of that when we yeah. did. Um, and also it was kind of a post-pandemic offering and it's very soft and, you know, I wasn't trying to like... Uh, beat anybody over the head with this music it was more yeah you know you know you make me think of the, the stories that have been told over the years about what the real innovation was that Bing Crosby brought to then popular music which was you know coming out of the Rudy uh, uh, Valley days with the megaphones and everything and, the, and and finally harnessing the power of the microphone for intimacy and not shouting into it and yeah. being right in the in the listener's ears and, and uh yeah I, I i think that kind of intimacy is um um speaks to the sort of relaxed and minimalist mood that i kind of get from the album i think of it as a minimalist minimalist recording um it, you know drummers we drummers often say we spend the first half of our careers trying to put figure out ways to put more notes in and then the second half of our career is trying to take notes out right. um yeah it seems to me there's no unnecessary notes in your singing or in this album it feels spare but not empty thank you that's that's great it's been so rewarding really to to see how well the record is done and that people are responding to it uh you know you never know you you do what you what you want to do at the moment and you don't know ahead yeah. of time how it's going to be received so well right. and you've got the the the, the ensemble so stripped down you know it's a little bit of drums on a few tunes but guitar and bass and voice for most of the album it, jazz is so such an interactive genre and the smaller the group the more exposed each player is um that that can be sort of a, a dangerous thing you know there can uh, you can you can find gaps but but this sounds full and complete and, um, you know, part of that, I'm sure, is testament to uh, the, the players. But did you have a specific sound in mind that you were going for or references from classic recordings you had heard uh, that you wanted to bring into this? Or was this just the way it came about? It's funny. Somebody mentioned the Chet Baker's trio was guitar, bass and vocal. Of course, yeah. he played played the horn on it, too. Right. It kind of was more the players I wanted to work with. And yeah, I just felt like keeping it simple was the way to go this time. Uh, and it is a little more uh, exposed, you know? Uh, yeah. But I mean, the, and there's well, it, bass and voice uh, choruses. Rodney is just so great. And Randy yeah. is, I had met Randy at the Jazz Showcase in Chicago when he was working with Freddie Cole, who he was with. Mm. From Freddie was a real mentor to to Randy, um, and we started talking about then, you know, recording. And oh, maybe a few years later, this this came about. So uh, it's funny the yeah. of the story, you know. Yeah, well, you know, and you mentioned that sort of being fitting coming out of the pandemic, that sort of intimate uh sort of feel um you know when i think about my personal experiences i feel like i've i think i've teared up at more live music 
uh, after the, the pandemic than, than I ever did before. And, and that's saying something because I cry easily at music. <laughs> but you know, what, what did the... <laughs> what did the lockdown do to you in terms of affecting your creativity um and you know how how must it feel to be back in front of real audiences with real music these days boy it, it was an eye-opener i think to a lot of us to suddenly have all the stages dark no clubs you know uh no music uh, it it, it made me appreciate more than ever uh, how valuable this art form is and how much I yeah. wanted to continue participating in it. Um, I remember going to uh, to see the Music Man on Broadway when we were all still mm. masked up. And as soon as they said, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Winter Garden Theater. I was just like crying behind my mask, you know, <laughs> the audience was just going nuts. And I mean, yeah. it's part of life. The performing arts are part of life that are so valuable. And uh, if anything, I think the, the dark stages helped me realize that all over again, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's profound, and I understand that. You, you know, there's a quality to your personal style, not just on this album, but on everything I've heard you do, that I think is especially fitting for this period of time that we're sort of talking about here, where, you know, the, the pandemic, I would say, created a lot of maybe depression, certainly, but also tension, anxiety, uh, a lot of uncertainty. There's a quality of relaxation and reassurance in the way that you sing, as I hear you. You know, there, there's not many singers, in my opinion, who really take their time with a song or with a lyric. You know, Carmen McRae was like that, in my opinion. Shirley Horn maybe is the avatar of that. I mean, you could drive a truck through some of her spaces, you know. Uh, but I think of that with, with you too, Libby. Your, your tempos, your phrasing, you never seem in a hurry. And I always feel like that lets the lyrics sort of bloom a little bit and the, and the music shine through. Are you really that relaxed as a person or is this something that you consciously developed uh, stylistically? I, I wouldn't say consciously, but maybe with maturity as we uh, continue to do what we do, there's, I'm, I guess I definitely feel more, more relaxed. Um, my favorite Shirley Horn quote is she told at a concert. Um, someone asked her, uh, you know, Miss Horn, why do your why do you do your song so slowly? And she said, because that's how long it takes. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, I, mean, I hadn't heard it before. I love it. Shirley Horn uh, tempo. If we were talking about this recently because the great Carol Sloan passed recently, and she could take a ballad at a glacial tempo, and you'd be on the edge of your chair as if it were the mm -hmm. fascinating story you've ever heard. You know, that is a you know a mass. She was a masterclass in how to do that, uh, and I think it's yeah. just staying present in the lyric. You know. You're telling a story. Yeah. When up in Michigan, Rodney had me come uh, do a master class with one of his jazz groups. And, you know, they've got some kick-ass players up there. <laughs> one of the things I told them was learn the lyrics to the songs. And I saw some eyes go open. Like, what? You know, sure. we have to learn yeah. the lyrics. 
uh, yeah, these songs are about something, you know. I always tell Bill Charlotte when he plays the piano, I can hear the lyrics because he knows what the song yeah. is about, you know, even though there's no nobody singing lyrics. You know? Right. Isn't that beautiful? And I I love Bill Charlotte. I mean, he, he's a dream piano player for me. Um, yeah, I, I, I recall stories about Hal Blaine, the great studio drummer, um, uh, always said that his first task was to listen to and learn the lyrics because his role as a drummer was to interpret that story, which I do think is unusual among non-singers. Uh, that's that's a wonderful thing. You know, you mentioned, you know, sort of a masterclass. Speaking of masterclass influences, you had a chance to study with Abby Lincoln, Lincoln for a period of time. Uh, and I'm, that, that, I'm just sort of amazed to even say that out loud because I think of Abby Lincoln as sort of this almost mystical master of our art and to just even be in her presence seems like it would have been overwhelming. Tell me how that came about, how long you spent with her and what you have retained from that experience. Yeah, a really uh, such a great experience. This was in the early 80s in New York. There was a a woman uh, who's still around, Kobe Narita, organized a bunch of jazz events. And this was a workshop, New Discoveries of 1982 or whatever it was. <laughs> the trio that we were working with was Harold Mayburn on piano, Jamil Nasser on the bass, and Frank Gant on the drums. So, you know, for a beginning singer, the bar was set very high. Yeah. A trio was supposed to sound. <laughs> and yeah, Abby was one of our teachers. And um, I remember for our final concert, I did something cool, which is on the new record. Uh, mm -hmm. She said, you did that very well, you know, and just coming from Abby. Uh, and she told me, you know, pick a, pick a spot in the room that you're telling that story to. Not don't look in the eyes of a real person, but in your mind, you've got a spot mm -hmm. where you're telling the story. And I still use that. You know, she was so. Is that amazing. right? And uh, so, yeah. And and we put Throw It Away on this record, which is her composition. Well, I, yeah, I was going to bring that up because I came to that tune late, only a few years ago uh, that I run across her recording of, of her composition. And the tune just blew me away. I mean, it's it's beautiful in composition, but it's also so just profound lyrically. Uh, has that been a part of your repertoire for a while then? Yeah, for quite a while. And, you know, it's about throwing the I Ching, the ancient Chinese book of change. Right. I, I found these magic words in a magic book, you know, yeah. and one the hexagrams just throw it away. So, and, and I've, use the I Ching over the years as well and you know no matter what what hexagram you throw there's something to be learned from uh from this and so that resonates with me and yeah it's so many of the songs you know in the great american songbook are about romantic love which is wonderful right i also like songs that are kind of uh about a bigger a bigger sense of love and life you know uh, and throw it away as one like that. You know, talking about different tunes and what you like, one of the things when we did that gig together in Sacramento, one of the things that became immediately apparent to me is that you have exquisite taste in material. Yeah. You, you know, I mean, and I love playing all the great American songbook stuff. Um, there's so many great compositions that have become standards. 
but you don't just do the usual suspects. Uh, your sets are peppered with these lesser known or unusual um, compositions that are just so much fun to play as a sideman. It keeps things fresh, but uh, you also give the audience something new with those. I think so on, on this album, you've got um, um, Rhode Island is famous for you, mm -hmm. uh, which is not a tune that I think a lot of people routinely hear Mountain Greenery made me smile when it came up when I was listening to your album. Uh, I first heard that, believe it or not, on the old Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, oh, the Rob and Laura characters actually performed that at a Rick, little show. Look that up. <laughs> yeah, it, it's really fun. And I was just a kid, uh, and but I've always been a nerd for this music. You know, I fell in love with it early. And and I remember distinctly as a little kid, thinking, oh, what is the song? You know, and I've loved Mountain Greenery since then, but you never hear it. So I'm curious, you know, is it just a matter of you like what you like and that's what you do? Or are you intentionally saying, hey, here's something that needs to be dusted off that hasn't been in the light enough for our audiences? How do you go about making the decisions on your material? Yeah, it's, it's more I like what I like, you know, and one yeah. of the, the great things about creating your own act all these years is I haven't had anybody telling me I had to sing a certain song except for my very first gig in New York which was with a big band Swing Street and you know I was the chick singer and you get up and do your work yeah. <laughs> don't get around yeah. much anymore or something you know which is was great right right training and experience but I guess I've just always gravitated to some of these songs that aren't done a lot um and and what what is the story and and you know how is it told and it's partly why I love Johnny Mercer, you know his lyrics are you can't get better, and uh, oh gosh yeah, yeah sometimes I've had to kind of if if I if a theme is necessary I have to try to find a theme the theme is yeah I like what I like <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good theme well you gave me a perfect segue mentioning Johnny Mercer, you've got a couple of, or two or three Mercer tunes on the album, uh, but the album opens with Hit the Road to Dreamland, uh, great Johnny Mercer uh, lyric uh, tune. So why don't we stop talking for a second and let folks listening to this hear some of uh, your great music, hear what we've been talking about with your choice of material and that, uh, that, that style. Uh, so here is Libby York with the great Johnny Mercer tune, Hit the Road to Dreamland, from her new album, Dreamland. Look. 
sugar that knocked out Moon Just a blow in his top in the blue Never saw the likes of you What an angel Bye-bye, baby Time to hit the road to dreamland All night, baby It was divine But the rooster has finally crowed Time to hit the road was Hit the Road to Dreamland by Libby York from her new album, Dreamland. Uh, what a great performance, Libby. That that tune is such a beautiful tune. I love Johnny Mercer, too. I mean, who doesn't? And, and especially the way you arrange that tune for, again, that, that tight, uh, compact trio of voice, guitar and bass. It really brings out the lullaby quality of the of the tune in, in, in my mind. Um, and, you know, I don't know about you, but I still like to listen to albums start to finish in sequence. And there's something about putting on a, a fresh CD, uh, play, you know, playing a, a fresh album, where that first track is the moment where I, as a listener, go like, okay, uh, am, am I going to be okay? Is this going to be a good experience? And I got to tell you, as soon as I started to listen to Hit the Road to Dreamland, I'm like, yeah, 
we're going to be okay. I'm in good hands. You know, <laughs> it sets the tone for the album so nicely. Thing is, you know, a big part of creating uh, a record, although now with streaming, so many songs yeah. are just pulled, uh, you know, unto themselves. But I, I enjoy, you know, it's like creating the perfect set for a club, which I never like to do the same set twice. And just to yeah. create, yeah, the perfect you know, tempo change, key change, feeling change to create a, a good set, I find endlessly challenging and fascinating, <laughs> depending on yeah. where you are. And uh, I'm going to New York next week. And of course, at Mesro, they know every song, every written, except for maybe a yeah. couple. <laughs> so, right, right. Yeah, actually, let's take a minute and, and promote that. It's uh, March 4th as we're recording this. I think you're going to be at Mesro in Manhattan on March 12th. Do I have that right? Right. Uh, why, why don't you uh, let people know um, other places, other times, because I know you're out on the road a little bit promoting this. Are there some other performances you can um, share with people coming up? Yeah. Then uh, April 20th um, in Chicago at Winter's Jazz Club, which is a beautiful listening room. And that is uh, sponsored by WDCV Radio. So there'll be plenty of airplay and um that's with uh, pete benson on piano with a wonderful clark summers on bass love him dearly and uh, eric schneider on uh on sax and clarinet and we've we've all worked together quite a bit before so i'm looking forward to that that's uh, april 20th uh 420 great yeah okay yeah there you go <laughs> popular date <laughs> jokes are we going to make? But anyway, it's April 20th. Yeah. <laughs> excellent, excellent. I, I want to talk a little bit about the studio experience for you. Um, the tunes all sound effortless. They sound like they could be perfect first take sort of club experiences. How much do you work and rework material when you're recording? Do you do a lot of takes? Um do you try and avoid editing uh, anything? You're looking only for single takes. Talk a little bit about the the behind the scenes process. Yeah. Um, you know, we I don't think we ever did more than maybe three takes of, of any of these tunes. Some the take we chose was the first one because you want to get the feeling. I learned that early on. You you keep yeah. the it's got the 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 feeling. Um but I'm not opposed to occasionally fixing something if it's if it's needs fixing. You know, we had a sure. wonderful engineer, Corey DeRussia, at Troubadour Studios in East Lansing. And uh, some of the mixing and mastering we did via Zoom. I was down mm -hmm. here in the West, mm -hmm. is in Michigan. And, uh, you know, you've okay at uh, three minutes, two seconds, there's a something a glitch or something you know right right and, uh, i like that about recording that you can you can fix something if you want to but try not to do a whole lot of that because you don't want to make it too uh you know you want to keep the original vibe yeah yeah well it, it definitely feels very authentic and, and very in the moment i should mention to folks the Dreamland is available directly from Libby at LibbyYork.com, and you can also find it on Amazon and Bandcamp. 
and pretty much everywhere else you buy, you download or stream your music. And I'm going to get on my soapbox for a moment and, and ask people, please, to consider buying instead of streaming. It varies from platform to platform, but it takes as many as a thousand streams for a music, musician to earn one dollar. Uh, so if you'd like uh, the music you love to thrive and for there to be more of it from the artists that you are enjoying, please buy their music. So end of soapbox. Um, into a good, a good outlet for that to buy the whole physical CD. Uh, absolutely. I hadn't used Bandcamp before, but it's a way to to just basically buy directly from the artist. You know. Yeah, I'm a I'm a fan. I think it's it's a really great thing for the artist community. Um, a little bit of a off music topic, but related. Uh, my dad was a watercolorist, and the painting on the cover of Dreamland yeah. really caught my eye. I think it's a beautiful piece. Is there any backstory to that that art, where it came from, and why you chose it? Absolutely, it's painted by my friend Susan Sugar. Uh, you can find her website. I think it's just susansugar.com beautiful artist um she's she lives in new york part of the year and key west part of the year um as soon as i realized i wanted to call the record dreamland the first thing that popped into my head this is perfect for a susan sugar painting so i oh, just nice. to her and she said oh i've always wanted to have my work on a cd cover and i'd love to offer it to you to you to use and then um John Bishop, who is head of Origin Records, I should mention this is on the Origin record label, is also the graphic designer. So he created what I think is a beautiful, uh, you know, panels of artwork yeah. layout and uh, and used uh, Susan's painting for the cover. So I'm glad you like that. Oh uh, yeah, it's beautiful. It's the the whole work becomes a sort of a single artistic expression, and, and I, I'm a fan of that. Um, let's go back in time a little bit. You were raised in Chicago. Um, I believe both your parents were musical, but talk a little bit about your early influences. Maybe what you recall first hearing. Was there a moment when you decided you wanted to sing? Did you study? Uh, what what were the early days and early influences for you? Yeah. Definitely heard uh, a lot of uh, music in the house. My folks loved Sinatra and uh, Perry Como. And, uh, sure. They both uh, were graduates of Northwestern. And my dad actually wrote a, a nightlife column for the Purple Parrot, which was the Northwestern <laughs> paper. And I still have some of them. It's great where he would go all these rooms in Chicago that had the big bands. And um, oh, wow. Uh, the family story was that Bob Crosby's big noise from Winnetka was about my dad because <laughs> he was. Oh, is that right? Sure <laughs> there was a big noise going on probably during the music, <laughs> but he had a wonderful voice and would occasionally sit in with some of the bands that came through. My mom was a wonderful singer too. They both played piano and sang, but you know, as a kid, you just kind of take that for granted. This was part of life in in our yeah. home and uh i was always in the uh you know in the school plays and in the choir but it took me a while to catch up with the idea that you could actually try to make this a career you know yeah. so you say, yeah. i did i started a restaurant the back porch cafe in rehoboth beach which is still there in delaware no kidding i love that yeah. 
Um, because I think, oh, restaurants, that's kind of like showbiz, you know, <laughs> but then. <laughs> Did you change your opinion of that at some point? <laughs> well, it can be. And I loved the process of creating this beautiful space that really is, is just like it was when we first started. We were having, uh, offering farm to, farm to table food, like at, when Alice Waters was creating shape. Oh, yeah, yeah. In that same era. But. It was wonderful creating it. And now when I go back, oh, I, the founder, you know, one of the founders of the back porch. That's exciting. But the day-to-day drone of working a restaurant was just not for me. I did it five years. And then luckily one of our people we were working with uh, took it over for for many years. And it was just recently yeah. sold to another employee. So it's kind of been a, a direct line of people who are real familiar with it. And uh, okay. so it was great experience. And uh, but yeah, after five years, I was already taking the bus from Rehoboth Beach up to New York to try to be a, a singer, you know. OK, got it. Yeah. Yeah, well, those seventeen-hour restaurant days, I imagine, made that hard to do. This, I, I, I've never worked in that environment, but every indication is it's one of the most brutal <laughs> careers you can have. Very hard work, and yeah. to be consistent, you know, it's difficult. But it does provide. I like the idea that you're creating this whole little world, yeah, uh, where people feel good, you know. And that's true of a good restaurant, you know? Yeah. So you were taking the bus to New York uh, and to try and break in. Uh, what were some of your first experiences like? How did you go about the process of saying, hey, Manhattan, I'm here and I'm ready to sing? It's funny. I sat in with a really great guitar player who's still a friend, Franklin McCare, who was playing down here in Key West at the Pier House. And... Uh, he invited me to sit in with him, which I did. I remember I, one of the songs was Cole Porter's Night and Day. And he said, mm. oh, yeah, great. If you ever want to sit in with me at my gig in the village, you're welcome. Well, that's all I had to hear. I had a sublet of the upper yeah. for the summer, you know, that kind of fell into my lap. And um, yeah, I did some workshops and I was already, you know, on the bandstand working. I'm probably one of the last uh era of musician who didn't go to a jazz program in college you know right right this now but uh, that wasn't around then so i i did the majority of my learning on the bandstand and uh then had to circle back and when you're using your voice regularly and you know there's a lot to learn about performing and uh and Franklin and I auditioned for a club uh, in the West Village called Horn of Plenty. And much to our surprise, we got the gig and we had about six <laughs> in our repertoire. So then we had to woodshed and develop, <laughs> develop an act, you know? So right. then after that, this is New York in the 80s. I was there till the early 90s. Um, oh, and I sent in my cassette tape to an ad in the Village Voice for a big band singer and, and yeah. got the gig and that was uh, Swing Street. It's a great trumpet player, of uh, Barry Bryson's band and got to work with some great musicians and, you know, you just keep going and learning as you go. Right. 
Yeah, and each thing leads to the next. You know, the New York in the eighties that was that was a a gritty time. That was before it really kind of got a little bit more cleaned up, as I as I understand it. Yeah, it was it was a little gritty, uh, but then as kind of I think the late eighties, then Wall Street was suddenly booming, and uh, yeah. You know, we'd play parties and dances and and gigs around town. And uh, people had said that that Manhattan after right after the pandemic reminded them of the 80s because it was a little funky and places. Yeah. Closed and, uh, but I think now it's kind of come come out of that. Yeah. I moved to New York in 2004, lived there for four years. And I remember talking to longtime residents and natives and saying how much I loved it. Now it didn't feel threatening at all. And it was surprisingly clean. They're like, well, yeah, you're here now, man. You should have been here 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, just at times the subway is always like the, the proving ground. How bad is it today? <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, uh, let's shift let, let's shift gears from times and places to, to some other people. Do I recall correctly? I seem to recall you telling me a story when we were hanging out uh, about getting a chance to sing with Leonard Bernstein at a party uh, once. Is that do I have yeah. that right? You have that right. It's remarkable. Um, a friend here in Key West who had a wonderful restaurant called Antonia's, which is still there. They're in Italy now, so they Antonia and Philip. Um, she was Italian and had befriended Lenny at the opera in Rome. <laughs> we got a call one night, Lenny's here for dinner. Would you like to come over? So yes, I would love to come over. And so after <laughs> dinner, we were drinking grappa, as I recall. And he knew I was. <laughs> and he said, Libby, let's go to the piano and play some blues. And. Um, oh my gosh. Because <laughs> he was a bit of a wild child. This was maybe only three years before he passed. Um, and I still remember seeing him, uh, you know, I did, uh, Billy Holiday's fine and mellow. He knew any singer oh, nice. blues. And I just remember, sure. looking, I was standing, he was sitting at the piano. His face was like to give a contemporary analogy. It was like Yoda, you know, it's like this <laughs> a face. And it wasn't until later I thought, holy cow, I just sang the blues with Leonard Bernstein. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Only in Key West would, would I have met him, no doubt. And, oh, my uh, gosh. It was really remarkable. Oh, that's, yeah, that's that's amazing. You know, uh, th that's one of the cool things about a career in this space is you never know what opportunities will arise and what which paths will cross. I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, if there are other memories um, you know, of just happenstance that really stand out for you. But I'm even more curious what memories you still hope to make because things are opening back up. You've got this new album out. You're clearly um, utterly engaged and enjoying your music. Well, what does the future look like for you? What more memories do you want to make? Well, I'm actually looking for an apartment in the New York area again. Uh, just to kind of make that my my city, I love I love uh, traveling and being in in uh, less urban spots as well. But um, when I go up there next week, I'm kind of looking around and uh, yeah, I just want to keep going, you know, keep yeah. working, 
with the best people I can possibly work with because that's how I get better. And um, I love the fact that the jazz community respects their elders. And I mean, Sheila Jordan is still singing at 90 something. Marilyn yeah. is still singing. Um, yeah. As long as the voice holds out, you know, and I can make the gig. <laughs> I want to keep going. Right. Uh, right. I'd love to travel. I'm hoping we can hook something up in California. And I love it. Paris, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, that's that's yeah. What more can a person ask for? Um, uh, it's it's wonderful that we can talk about live gigs again. Uh, I want to remind people you're going to be at Mesro um, on the 12th, and you've got some other things coming up after that. Um, uh, I just want to thank you for the time to chat, Libby. I, you know, we've covered some interesting ground. Is there anything else you want people to know about the album or anything else that um, you, you want to promote about it? Oh, well, just stay in touch on LibbyYork.com or Facebook or Instagram. And, you know, it's always nice to uh, stay in touch. And I love getting my Apple Music map of the world every Friday. And <laughs> we talked about this, all the continents and cities and places the music is being streamed. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't amount to money, but it's fascinating. This is really the first album I've made since streaming was the, the norm. And, uh, you know, India, you just ha wonder how did they get all of that? Isn't that the truth? Yeah. Yeah, right. Somebody, somebody in Helsinki listened to that one track 12 <laughs> times. Okay, yeah. that's great. <laughs> 25 or 30 plays and there's one listener you know you've got one person that really digs it <laughs> you've got a true fan well i suspect we've created some uh, some new libby york fans with our conversation today and for those of you listening if that's you be sure to learn more about libby at libbyyork.com you can buy her new album dreamland there and wherever else you buy your music libby thanks so much it's always a treat to spend time with you and i can't wait to do it again sometime Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. This has been another episode of Easy Jazz Spotlight. Don't forget to check out our music at easyjazz.fm. <laughs>